The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Will you pray with me again? We consider our world, oh God, there is so much uncertainty. Uncertainty in economies. Uncertainty across borders. Uncertainty here in America. Uncertainty in Eastern Europe. Uncertainty in our own lives. Here is what is certain. Man fades just like grass. The word abides forever. So help now as I speak would the meditations of my heart and what comes out of my lips be fit and would your people hear from the heart. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Good morning, everyone. My name is Daniel. If you're new at Bethlehem, I'm one of the other pastors here. I'm the shortest pastor on staff. And uh, my apologies to people in the front. Um, if you were to come to my house, you would probably come upon a pretty chaotic house with three small children and You'd find, though, that one particular place in my house is meticulously ordered. And it's the place where all the Lego ships are. Now, without saying who has created said Lego ships, we'll leave the identity of the creator alone. If you were to go in, you'd cure from this Lego creator an explanation about all of these various ships and all their details and other things. But there's one particular ship that is the coolest and the bestest. It's the American Falcon. Now, the American Falcon, uh, you hear, it's got little things inside of it. Bombs, I'm told. I mean, bombs, someone told me. Um, Flies around, it's got guns, got a little radar, some other stuff, a cloaking device. Now, you could listen to the creator of this little ship go on and on and on about how great it is. And as you do so, you can discover that the person that made this has invested a lot of time and energy into thinking about it and talking about it. When we hear somebody go on and on about something that they really enjoy and they've invested a lot of time in creating, we find out that it reflects something of who they are. Later today, it's supposedly going to be like 45 degrees. I'm going to grill, hopefully. It's 45 degrees in February in Minnesota. Praise God. Praise God. You can, grill. you can hear me talk about the preparation of the food, how I'm going to grill it. If you're a, a craftsman, maybe a wood craftsman, and uh, you see something made beautifully, and you hear them talk about it, or an architect who designs buildings, or a gardener who meticulously plans and uh, sees a garden grow, we stand in admiration of that person. We stand in kind of like, oh, this is really interesting how involved this is and how much time and attention they're willing to put into it. As we turn from Genesis 1 to Genesis 2, this is what our God is like. Out of all the things that our Lord God made in the universe, we're turning our attention now to some specific things. And we've heard what some of them are already. Back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, it's mankind is one of those specific things. And now in Genesis chapter 2, we're going to hear more not only about God's people but about God's place, a specific place where God's people will rule over the creation like a castle or a capital city. So as we turn from Genesis 1, 
and all that God has made. We go from a survey to specific things, a particular place with a particular couple and the particular presence of God. Now, remember the last two weeks and Pastor Dave preached on the design and the purpose of creation. All of creation meant to reflect the glory of God. All of creation designed in such a way that flourishing, happiness, joy comes not from ignoring God or forging our own way, but from hearing and heeding what he's said. So today in our text in Genesis chapter 2, why does God set his special sight on a particular place? Are there clues or outright statements in the text that are going to help us and understand the design of God's particular place for his people and his presence? So would you pray with me again? We need help. So God, why do we pray so much? Because we're dependent. I can prep all the stuff. I can do all the study. Um, People can meticulously turn pages, but unless the Spirit is present, of what benefit is it? So help by the Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I hope you have a Bible with you. There's a Bible right in front of you, hopefully, or if you've got it on your smartphone, you can certainly do that too. Kids, we're going to be looking at the Bible a lot. Maybe peer over your your parent's shoulder if you don't have a Bible. We're going to be looking again and again at the text because we believe our God has spoken. So first, we see the real timeline of a real creation just in one verse, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So a couple things to note here on this point. First, at the outset of our text today, we see a phrase that's going to show up ten different times in Genesis. It's translated, these are the generations. Now, if you've been tracking along for the previous chapter in a little bit, you might expect, okay, these are the generations. Oh, this is talking about what just happened in chapter one and the first three verses of chapter two. This is actually a forward-pointing marker looking down farther, that's, if you treat it like a funnel, it's, it's moving us in a direction of the text to focus our attention downward. And that's how it's used throughout the book of Genesis. So what is this about? It's about the heavens and the earth, or a particular story within the heavens and the earth. When is it happening? In the day that the Lord God made it. Now this marker is, like I said, going to be used throughout Genesis, a total of ten different times, to mark out successive generations of God's promise. It's going to be used to trace Abraham and Isaac's other sons as well, Ishmael and Esau, because God had promises connected to them. But it's going to serve to tighten our focus as we go. We're going to focus on Noah and his offspring, and Terah, the father of Abraham and his offspring. Then we're going to focus on Isaac and Jacob, and particularly two of Jacob's kids. Why those two? Well, you'll have to keep coming and listening to the sermons. So as we're going through Genesis, we don't want to only explain the narrative in the context of, hey, just this one book. But this whole book beyond Genesis, these 66 books, we believe have one, it has one author. And therefore, when we see different connections and different points, we say, yes, this is designed, this is purposeful. So we want to share, as Dave has over the last couple of weeks, and as we'll continue to do throughout Genesis, 
how all the various scriptures fit together. So a question, do later biblical authors after Genesis use this kind of focused attention, maybe even using like actual objective evidence? There's only a couple of times that the exact phrase, these are the generations, is used. Now there's tons of times that some other languages use, talk about genealogies and stuff like that. But later biblical authors seem to be hearkening back to this in a few specific places that I think are significant. One of them is Ruth chapter 4, starting in verse 18. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Who's Perez? Perez fathered Hezron. Well, who did Hezron father? Glad you asked. Hezron fathered Ram. What about him? Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. Jesse fathered David. The focus of the biblical storyline zooms in not only on these particular points in Genesis, but continues to track their descendants into the rest of the Bible, yes, focusing on David as you turn to the New Testament, one of David's descendants. So the purpose of tracing the generations is a little bit like this. Humor me with a silly analogy. I'm a Cincinnati Bengals guy. I'm sad. It's okay. I know. It's all right. They're my number two team. I won't mention who my number one team is, lest there be a revolt in this, the land of Vikings. Now, the Bengals, for years and years, had Carson Palmer, a quarterback who didn't do very much. But these are the generations of Joe Burrow. And we're going to see what happens with Joe Burrow, hopefully beyond this. Will he get the Bengals someday to the Super Bowl? And the Bengals will finally have the glory of winning the Super Bowl because they've never won a Super Bowl. Kind of like the Vikings, I think. Now, we need to get inside the biblical text in this way. The authors are tracing particular lines of promise for particular reasons. And we're going to see where those lines go. Who will restore the glory of creation that's going to be lost after the fall that's coming in the next chapter of Genesis? So, Here we are, zooming in on one event, one person in the book of Genesis. Now, the other thing to note, we see the first instance in this one verse of the covenant name of God, Yahweh Elohim. If Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 3 speaks more to generalities about how all creation was made, Genesis chapter 2, verse 4 zooms in and even begins with using the covenant name of God for the very first time. Other creation accounts that were common back then, Sumerian, Akkadian, and other things like that, had, had generic names in their own language for the God of the Bible, typically that had some kind of derivative of, of L in, uh, in those, like E-L would be the way that it's anglicized today. Well, this is God himself of the Bible, the Hebrew God the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not a generic deity. No, as Dave said the first week that we started in Genesis, the God that made everything. And what do all the other nations surrounding Israel think? That all those things that the true God made are actually deities, that the sun, the moon, and the stars are divine and to be worshipped. This is not 
what our text says. Snakes, cats, fish, they all had various expressions of deity in the ancient Near East. No. I mean, cats, what's going on there? Cats, like, okay. All these various things were created by God and for his glory. And Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, highlights who he is, the covenant God. So in this first point, we talked about the signal in Genesis that kind of we're going to trace. These are the generations throughout the book of Genesis. And we talked specifically about God's name. All of Genesis is wrapped up in revealing who God is, both in what he says and what he creates. And that's all just from one verse. We're going to speed up a little bit, I promise. There's more here, though. What about the place of God's blessing? If we've seen God form a people to some degree, we're going to zoom in a little bit more on who they are and where he's going to place them. So, second point, a real people in a real place. Genesis chapter 2, verse 5 through 14. Please read along with me. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and he put the man whom he had, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that was pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Bashan. It's the one that flowed around the whole hand of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good, but Delium and onyx stones are there. The name of the second river is the Gahan. It's the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. First, why does it seem like there's some discrepancies between chapter 1 and chapter 2 surrounding the order of creation? So is this, like uh, many modern scholars say, there are multiple people that wrote Genesis and then somebody later came along and kind of smashed different accounts together? I think it's important to remember what is the lens over chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 3, is a broad, general lens. Here's a statement of what happened. What did God do? In six days he made everything, and on the seventh he rested and then these are the generations in chapter 2, verse 4, like it is used later in the book, focuses in more narrowly on some particulars, some of the how. Now we've focused, shifted focus to a particular place and zoomed in with more creation, more detail on the creation of man the next week in the text that Dave will preach on, on the creation of woman. These are the generations. It's our signal that this particular story is about a particular place and a particular people under the broad heading of everything that God made in Genesis 1. Creation was formed in all of its various places, and then, while ground is present and before things spring up, so there's material, there's something that's unformed. There's something that's left undone. There's, there's not a cherry on top yet, as it were. Seemingly, after all the rest of creation was made, a particular place was made where it seems like heaven and earth will meet. Where the God who's made his creation will come 
and commune with his creation. Consider this a throne room, a castle, a place of blessing, or as we're going to see, a temple where God would dwell with mankind. Just as none of the animals in all of creation were meant for man, as we're going to see in next week's text, there was a particular place meant for man in Genesis 2. A garden in Eden. And see too here the intimacy of God's presence. What does it say? Out of dust, we are dust. He formed the man and then breathed into him life. Our God is not high in the heavens as other ancient gods were, just kind of forming and doing and staying aloof. He is with his creation. So to summarize, whereas Genesis 1 is a statement of generally, factually what happened, Genesis 2 zooms in on the how of a particular place, Eden. Even uh, the ESV, the translation of choice here, makes some interpretational differences here by saying earth, earth, earth in Genesis 1. And then the same word is used in Genesis 2, 5, and 6, and it's translated land, which I think is right. It's talking about a specific place in all the earth. So why is Eden so important? Here is the place that God specifically sets aside to dwell with his people, to commune with Adam and Eve. Just a note on verse 9. You see it there. We're going to come back to it. Two specific trees are mentioned here. Why are they mentioned? One of them, well, a couple of them, next chapter, both of them, we're going to come back to. But we're going to talk about, a little bit about them today and uh, tee up Dave for the following weeks. So first, there is no discrepancy between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. It is uh, the generality is in Genesis 1, big picture, more specific picture in Genesis 2. Second, does the word Eden itself have any meaning? Anything in particular that we can say about that if you're uh, in an evangelical Christian subculture, including myself, you invest a lot of things in the naming of your kids, probably. Like not just the way they sound, but perhaps what the word actually means. Uh, you know, names.com, you know, 11 years ago, as we were, like, figuring out, like, what are we going to name our kids? Okay, so does anything about Eden specifically tell us what, what might be some meaning here? Now, many scholars, all the way back in the 1700s and the 1800s, looked at the word Eden, and they looked at other surrounding cultures for similar-sounding words, and they looked at, like, a Sumerian language and other things like that, I'm not sure that the best way to read our Bibles is to go outside the Bible to figure out the Bible, although that could be helpful. That could be helpful at times. So what we should do is look at the rest of the Bible and see, are there other places that kind of point us to what this word means? We should compare Scripture with Scripture. And so let's look at the actual words of the Hebrew Bible. Consider Genesis 18.12, where this word shows up again. But not as obviously if you're reading an English text. So this is uh, Genesis 18. Uh, God has come to Abraham and Sarah, and God has said, Abraham's going to bear, you know, get pregnant and have a child. Sarah's response is this. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? Where, where is Eden in that? It's the last word, pleasure. It's the same root word with a slightly different suffix that points at a different kind of speech, but it's the same word, okay? Consider Psalm 36, 8. 
They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. Same word, Eden, delights. The very name of Eden means delight. Delight that mankind has in their creator, or delight that the creator has in mankind? Doesn't say. But I'd say, I mean, God's the one naming it. Like, I just kind of want to say, yes? Without like, oh, let's go, like, I can't prove that, but I think, like, yes. God's delight in us and our delight in God are not disconnected from one another. There's a reason that we talk about spreading a passion for joy at Bethlehem. Because we think our joy and God's joy is fundamentally what mankind is created for and that our God is fundamentally a happy God. Did you ever think about that? God, a happy God, happy over what he created and then he calls us to take joy in him. So the word Eden means delight. And then third, a word about the four rivers here and why so much time might be spent on this or what we can see Two of them, the Tigris and Euphrates, are actual you know, places that we can find today. The one that says it connects to Cush. Cush is probably modern-day Ethiopia, which right now Iraq and Ethiopia, if you think about them, are kind of parted by a Red Sea. So, okay, we won't get into maybe the details there. We can get kind of down a geographical uh, rabbit hole. The rivers are somewhat interesting here. If you're an Israelite hearing this, in the wilderness, Moses has ridden this. You're going to be able to say, well, I know where that is. It's 1,000, 1,500 miles away. You know, kind of on the other side of probably a desert at the time. Here I am sojourning. It's a real place. Not mythological, all right? Real place. And the fact that the rivers are flowing from Eden probably indicates not that Eden's like this flat desert place, but probably that Eden is higher in elevation than the rest of the surrounding land if the water is flowing from it. Perhaps like a mountain. I think that's the way the Bible portrays Eden. In Ezekiel 28, Ezekiel 31, you can check that later, that Eden is alluded to as a mountain of God or a couple times in Ezekiel 31 that everything that's in Eden when the fall happened, that they went to the lower places, like Eden is higher than what's surrounding it. Mountains throughout the scriptures, Mount Moriah, Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, Mount Zion, are the places that God chooses to meet his people. Oh, okay. So Eden's kind of like a mountain higher than everything else around it. What else can we see here? I think this points us towards fourth. Eden's a real place. But Eden, as it's set up here in the scriptures, creates a pattern for us to see again and again similar language all throughout the Bible. This is what biblical scholars call typology. And sometimes when somebody says typology or like allegorical, it's not real. No, 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 it's all real. But in God's design, in the scriptures, and in his history, he has set up patterns to show again and again his plan for his creation. And there's a pattern here for Eden, the place of God's presence. We need to consider how Edenic language is used throughout the Bible. So this is going to be a high overview. Ask me for the notes later. One of the books I'm going to give away talks more about, yes, it's a Daniel Vizbicki sermon. There will be books to give away. It's true. 
Let's track just briefly here over a couple of minutes where some of this language goes. First, the tabernacle. In Exodus 26, the crafting of the tabernacle is filled with garden language, fruit trees, green grass. And then, as we're going to see in the next chapter, chapter 3, where God places a cherubim, a cherub to protect the garden from outsiders. So too, we see on ten different curtains surrounding the Holy of Holies, what's etched into the tapestry? Cherry bin. Okay. The temple, First Kings 6. Same. Images of a garden all throughout the temple complex. Fertility. Trees everywhere. And two cherubim that are crafted to bar the way into the Holy of Holies. Okay? And not to mention the ark and the two cherubim over there and everything else. Or the future temple in Ezekiel 40 through 48. Plants, images of fertility, and cherubim. And, at the end of that account, water that flows out from the center of that temple to water everything around and give life to creation. We're not even talking about the exact identity of that temple. That's another sermon for another time in Revelation, which we will certainly preach on next. Right, Dave? Or consider Jesus. Jesus in John 2 said, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. It took us 40 plus years to build this, Jesus. What are you talking about? They didn't realize that it was the temple of his body. Or when Jesus says in John 4, to the woman at the well, he that believes in me, out of him will flow rivers. Okay, so Jesus prefigures and points towards where is temple language landing in the New Testament? When John 7, Jesus doubles down on this. And then the church of God in 1 Corinthians 6, 2 Corinthians 6, and Ephesians 2 gets called the temple of God. All of this language is being repurposed and reused. I mean, not repurposed, that's the wrong way. It's always purposed, but it's being found in new contexts everywhere. And then, of course, in Revelation 21 and 22, no temple, God is there, but a single tree of life that's big enough to apparently be on either side of a river that's flowing out from the throne of God to water all of creation and give life. The river of life and the tree of life. Do you see how much of the biblical language surrounding the temple and the place of God's presence begins here in a garden in a high place in Eden? So Eden begins like a sanctuary in the presence of God. Like, maybe not today, 45 degrees, but like three weeks ago, if you were to go to Como Zoo, Como Conservatory, and here's a greenhouse, and it's warm, and it's lush, and it's beautiful. That's what Eden was like in many ways. In the winter of everything else in God's creation, which was beautiful and very good, well, we're going to see in a second, something was meant to happen with all of creation. Minnesota winter gives way to summer. The presence of God will fill all creation in the day to come. Now, there's another reason that we should see Eden in the light of temple language, and it's found in the purpose of mankind being in the garden. So this is our last point, real mission and a real test. Verse 15. 
The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So first we need to see how Adam's job description points towards Eden being a kind of prototype for future temples. Adam working and keeping in the English translation here is uh, not just um, like Wilson in Home Improvement. Remember Wilson, you know, the guy that came over. Sorry, I'm dating myself here. Like the consummate gardener, like, oh, hidey ho, neighbor, and go back to that. It's a job description that's later taken up for the priests of the tabernacle and the temple. So this is Numbers 18, verses 5 and 6. And you shall keep guard, there's the word for keeping, over the sanctuary and over the altar, that there may never again be wrath on the people of Israel. And behold, I've taken your brothers, the Levites, from among the people of Israel. They are a gift to you, given to the Lord, to do the service, working the tent of meeting. These words show up again and again in different contexts in the Old Testament. Mankind was meant to tend to the place of God's presence and to guard it from anything that would be a threat to God dwelling with man. I think it's right to say, Dave said it, it's right to say that Como Zoo was meant to get its walls knocked down and to get bigger, and to get bigger, and to get bigger, because that's where we see creation finally landing in Revelation 21 and 22. It's not one little place that God's presence dwells. It's all of creation. And that's what Adam and Eve were meant to do. Now, why would there be outside threats to this very good creation that God had made? Well, I'll let Dave tackle that in Genesis 3 a little bit. Or if you're hungry for spoilers, maybe Bruce is here and Rick Shanker here. I hear that they're supposedly the experts about such things. Or you can come talk to me afterwards. I think I've got another book about that here. So remember, one thing, just a very quick application here. Remember from Jonathan Lehman's sermon four weeks ago, Dave's sermon three weeks ago? The purpose of our fellowship here together and the fellowship of local churches wherever they're found is not only to come and have religious goods and services dispensed to you. Like every, the action is up here on the stage. The action's here. And when you leave here, and when you go to your neighborhoods, and when you get together in small groups, and when you pray for one another, and when you provide meals, and when you just check in on each other, that's where the action is in the church. Protecting the place of God's presence in this age is here where God has put his spirit to dwell. And Protestant churches, we are a Protestant church, Baptist church, have historically done this through church membership and church discipline. Far from being this arcane action that just happened way back then when the Reformation was going on, church membership and discipline is, like Jonathan said, like a passport for God's kingdom. Not granting citizenship or removing citizenship. Only God can do that by faith in Jesus Christ. But the church is meant to be the place where we say to one another, we care about one another's faith in such a way that we want God and his presence to be here among us because of faith in Jesus Christ, because of what Christ has done, rather than it being my relationship with God is a private matter, stay out, which is a relatively modern invention. It's not what we see in the New Testament. If you consider Bethlehem South your home, consider how you can tend and guard this garden of God's glory together with us by caring for one another. 
Second, last point here for this last point. In this place, we also see a particular tree that God made and gave Adam commands concerning. What is the nature of this tree? Well, we have to say this tree is not a bad tree. It's not like, oh, here's one tree that has like bad fruit and all the good stuff that God made. Like sometimes it's depicted like here's poisonous fruit, right? It's part of the good creation that God made. And it's clearly stated in chapter 2, verse 9, something that was there, out of all that he made that was placed there. The tree had a purpose. What was it? I think the phrase, the knowledge of good and evil, as it shows up, again, we're trying to compare Scripture with Scripture, points towards wisdom that's needed for right rule. Wisdom that's needed for right rule. Consider how the phrase in Hebrew shows up a couple different places. Second Samuel chapter 14, verse 17, concerning David. The word of my Lord the King will set me at rest, for my Lord the King is like an angel of God to discern good and evil. The Lord your God be with you. Or First Kings 3, 9, after Solomon asks for wisdom. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? I think it's the intention, likely. You can can quote me on this. Other people disagree. I think it's the intention, not that, hey, here's a test and stay over here and just, like, don't go near it, guys. And that was in perpetuity meant to be the plan. But in God's great sovereignty, knowing the fall, what happened? What was one thing that was the design of creation? That Adam and Eve would, at the right time, receive wisdom to know the difference between good and evil. They were meant to eat of it, I think, eventually. But not being ready, they were to hear and heed their God's words. They were to express trust in God by obeying him. They were to be governed by his word, dependent on him for wisdom, including when is it a right time for us to take this? Man was created innocent, yet without wisdom, to rule God's world, created in need, dependent upon God's presence and provision. To rightly rule, as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, I think, expresses. And to have eternal life, as the tree of life expresses. Now, Dave's going to touch on more in a couple weeks. I think it's safe to say just mankind was created to be dependent upon God and chose not to be. And God even warned them in our text here. What's the price tag for disobedience? It's, it's a price tag because of their relationship with God and his word and their refusal to heed him and hear him. Not because the tree was somehow poisonous or created bad. It's about their life with God. In the middle of so much yes, there was one no, and this single no is a test. Will they be governed by him or not? Will we be governed by him and his word? Or will they grab hold of that which is not yet to be theirs and seek to be like God? So God's word is present to govern his people, to protect and provide for them. And this too is a pattern. Do you remember another passage? I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 1. Turn with me to John chapter 1. There's another place where God's word came to govern his people. And his people rejected him. John chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, 
And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then starting in verse 9. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own. His own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. What does our text today have to do with Jesus? Now, without getting into all the metaphysical realities of what it means that Jesus was the Word of God, it's just this question. What will you do with Jesus? What will you do with him? And all that he said, and all that he came to do, it may be the hardest thing in the world, or seemingly so, for you to turn from whatever else you've been heeding and hearing to Jesus But here alone is provision for salvation from the wrath of God and from the consequences of sin. Here alone is life after death. Another question. Today, you're a follower of Jesus. What do you think our text has to do with his word? Are you governed by his word? Do you want to hear and heed what he said? Herein is delight found. Hearing his safety. Not in shirking off what he's said or forging our own path, but submitting to our creator and what he's told us to find joy and fulfillment in his protection and provision. Seen so much of God's presence here. Are you compelled by his presence? Are you compelled to be in the presence of God like the psalmist? Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Do you want to be with your creator to know him and realize you are known by him? This is what you were made for, to reflect his glory. Is this compelling? Ask yourself, what barriers have you placed? If it's the pure in heart that will see God, according to Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. Are you seeking him in this way? Are you seeking to, by grace, remove barriers to your fellowship with him? Or maybe this morning, in the midst of this broken world, you particularly feel broken by it. You're a teenager, and you're discovering that life is far more complicated, and there's a lot more sad things out there than you realized. You're a parent, and your children aren't turning out quite the way you hoped. You're an employee, and the ups and downs of the job market problematic, you're a church member here or anywhere, and you've been disappointed by your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. The pathway forward towards joy and delight is found in this, God's presence with us now by the power of the Holy Spirit, and God's presence with us forever, where everything will be made right. Everything. Everything will be made right. Do you have hope? Do you have hope for that? So, will you make it your mission to make his glory known? This is the purpose of all creation. More love, more joy, more peace. To tell others of this. So, in conclusion, the place of God's presence with his people was always meant to be a place of delight, and that's what we're interested in here at our church. 
your pleasure, your joy in God. So I pose this question all the time. You see me passing in the hallway. Are you happy? Are you happy this morning? Are you finding, are you finding that happiness and lesser things just really isn't happiness? That's as it should be. Because your delight was meant to be found in one place, God, and yes, all the gifts that he uses to point back to him. The purpose of Eden and all creation is to point towards our utmost delight, a real God who really created us to be with him forever in a real place, and that's where the entire Bible tilts after Genesis 3. God restoring us. What will be your part? Will you be restored to fellowship through your, with your creator? Through faith in Christ. And if you've experienced that restoration, will you continue to remember you're not home yet? Now, we didn't talk much about the tree of life other than it shows up in other places in the Bible, but consider the trajectory from a tree that leads to a curse in the garden and the presence of only one tree, not two trees, in the very last chapter of the Bible. This is Revelation 22, verses 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, and also on either side of the river, the tree of life with 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. The night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign with him forever and ever. From one tree that brought a curse to nothing accursed will be there. Do you hear the echoes of Eden and the delight? We aren't home yet. And that brings us to the communion table. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720-13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.